Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. On today's program, we continue our current series on the book of Ruth entitled, Finding God in the Disappointments and Losses in Life, as Dr. Newfeld unpacks the theme of lavish grace. So let's begin by turning in our Bibles to Ruth chapter 2, verses 3 to 9. Sometimes when Christians think of God's providential care for their lives, they can mistakenly think God is providing just enough to meet their needs. We say God doesn't give us all we want, just all we need. Well, that's true in many cases, but taken by itself, that statement is actually misleading. As some of us think of God's care, we get an idea of a God who begrudgingly gives, but never too much. Perhaps we're reacting to those who preach a prosperity gospel, and I would be the first one to say the prosperity gospel is not the gospel at all. It's just a way of sanctifying our greed. And God is not here to make you rich and beautiful, but we can't build our theology in reaction to what is false. And I'm trying to get a picture of a God who's lavish, who knows how to give good gifts to his children. One of the reasons so many of us don't do bold things in faith is that we carry an idea of a God who only gives a little. We think of grace as a meager ration rather than a lavish feast. We believe in a God who gives just enough rather than a God who gives more than enough. And so we're timid and afraid to trust God in a bold way, afraid to leave all to follow Christ because we believe it will diminish us and not enrich us. So when the offering comes by, we never give too much. And when the call goes out, we never serve too much. And when great needs are presented, we never pray too much, and we certainly never risk too much. After all, we need to hold on to our resources. They're in precious supply. After all, God only takes care of the basics. At least that's so how we believe. And if the truth be told, we have become boring and drab and unexciting, predictable, disinterested Christians fooling around with sin rather than entering into the lavish life of faith. We have few great stories about what God has done, only the predictable and the expected. And in consequence, we've become hopelessly sidetracked, becoming deeply interested in other matters rather than God. After all, what's so exciting about God? And the story of Ruth challenges these assumptions. Her story challenges us to be fully alive. Her life ought to make each one of us evaluate our life with questions. What would full, abundant living really look like? What would I do if I believed that grace was lavish rather than meager? What would I imagine if I knew there was an unending supply from the throne of the one who knows no famine? Well, let's read Ruth chapter 2, verses 3 to 7. So she, that is Ruth, set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. 
Now, before we dive right into this passage, let's review where we've been. Ruth has been on a spiritual pilgrimage. Her husband has died, and she, as a widow, has left her family, her culture, and her gods, and has journeyed to Israel, a land where her culture and racial background would likely be despised. But she was committed to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she was determined to embrace the true God, the God of Israel. She's made a bold step of faith. She has no money, no family support, no marriage prospects, but she trusts in the God of Israel, and she has, in our eyes, made a reckless, bold step of faith. Israel had a law that allowed the poor and foreigners to, at harvest time, go out into the field some distance behind the harvesters and to glean whatever they may have dropped. And Ruth says to her mother-in-law, let me go and select one of the fields and glean. Naomi gave her permission, and with that, Ruth set out in the morning to, at random, pick out one of the fields. She does and begins her work. The sun would have been hot. The work would have been hard. She would have to spend the day bent down, looking carefully, to find the occasional stalk of grain that might have fallen from the harvesters. When she found it, she would gather as much as she could carry, and then take it to the corner of the field and beat it out, and put it into whatever sack she had brought. And she would repeat that process all day. If she had water to drink, it would only be as much as she could carry— plus the grain. She probably had no lunch to pack, and she would have to eat whatever grain she found to sustain herself. I suspect there would not have been an abundance left behind the harvesters, meager rations to be sure, but hopefully it would be enough to allow her and Naomi to have a small meal at the end of the day. And that's the barrenness of the scene that greets Ruth. But at that moment, the owner of the field comes onto the scene. We know he's a godly man because the author has already told us way back in verse 1 that he is a man of Hayil, that is, a decorated war veteran, a man of wealth, and a man of upstanding character. And so in verse 4, we're not surprised that he greets his workers with the words, the Lord, that is, Yahweh, the God of Israel, be with you. And then, for it seems that Boaz's workers had an established pattern between them, they would say in response, the Lord bless you. No doubt those words came from Numbers 6.24, in which Moses was told to teach Aaron a blessing he was to pronounce upon the people. I mean, perhaps you come from a church in which the service you attend always ends in what has been called the Aaronic Blessing. I have a personal story connected with the Aaronic Blessing. I always think of the death of my own dad. He was dying, and as we as a family stayed beside at his bedside, he lingered for some time, and, and one of my sisters, who was from Edmonton, had to go home. She would realize she would never see my father again, so my father pulled her aside and placed his hand on her head and said the ironic blessing over her. Those were the last words she heard from her father, and those words profoundly affected her. But if you don't know the ironic blessing, let me repeat it to you. It simply says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It would seem from reading the book of Ruth that Boaz had established a pattern between himself and his employees. He would bless them in the name of the Lord, and they would respond by blessing him in the name of the Lord. And that pattern was built after a pattern of blessing that they found in the law of God. I remember the first time I visited the nation of Romania. I was surprised to hear that believers had a specific way of greeting one another. Instead of simply saying, alo, as was said in the culture, they said, pace, peace. It was a way of identifying that they were believers and a signal that for them, greeting ought to include the blessing of God on their lives. 
Imagine that this pattern of relationship between Boaz and his employees was practiced during the time of the judges, when decency had all been but forgotten, when the law of God had been perverted. In this general cultural environment, Boaz established that on his farm, or if you will, in his place of business, there would be a godly decency that would pervade the interactions between the boss and his employees. Imagine Ruth's surprise as the owner of the field enters and immediately the relationship of godly love and grace sets the stage for what happens at this place of work. This is a man of God. But Boaz is also an observant man. He notices everything his workers are doing and he also instantly observes that one of the women does not belong. And he asks the foreman who she is and he identifies her as the Moabite woman. Everyone in Bethlehem has been talking about her. And in fact, the way the Hebrew is constructed in verse 6 makes it clear that the foreman says she is the Moabite woman. Yeah, that one that everyone in the whole town has been talking about. But then the foreman adds something that may take us by surprise. Before she began gleaning in our field, she asked for my permission. Although the law of God gave Ruth a legal right to glean whatever was left over in the field she came upon, still she had come to the foreman, identified herself as that Moabite woman, so he would know who she was, and asked for permission to do that which was her legal right to do. Clearly, she's not a strident woman demanding her rights. Rather, she is meek, she's humble, she believes that she seeks grace and not a right. Now, obviously, the foreman must have given her permission and not driven her off. And with that, the foreman started to notice her and saw that she was exceptionally diligent. She obviously didn't just grab a few stalks of grain. She saw this task of gleaning that only poor people did as a full-time job. She's not a slacker. She was a great worker. She started at the crack of dawn, has taken one short break, and then went right back to work. No special pleas for anything, just diligence. This, of course, is a biblical virtue. The virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, often quoted at Mother's Day, tells us in verse 27 that she does not eat the bread of idleness. Hard work is also commended in the New Testament in several places. And here we are introduced to Ruth, a woman who is working at minimum wage, a wage that does not put her above the poverty line, as we would call her one of the world's working poor. And instead of complaining that this job sucks, And this isn't fair. And what a stupid country this is anyways. She puts her head down and works so hard the foreman is quite impressed. And that's just the beginning. Stay with me as we come back and see a picture of a virtuous woman and a lavish God. At first glance, we may not notice anything remarkable about this passage. But this introduction has shown us that if we look deeper, we can see the virtuous character of Ruth shining through as well as the godliness of Boaz. There is much to learn from Ruth as we consider her attitude and behavior and how they reflect a real deep trust in the sovereignty and abundant grace of her God. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld will explain more thoroughly about how this lavish grace worked out in her life. Have you ever found yourself intimidated by the idea of studying the book of Revelation? Well, you're not alone. But Dr. Neufeld doesn't believe you need to be. The book of Revelation is a great book of hope and anticipation of all that God is preparing in advance for his people. So take the journey through some of the most significant themes of Revelation in this five-message series, From Creation to Creation, and it's our free gift to you this month. 
Just call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or request your copy by emailing info at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. In Acts 20, 33-34, Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders in respect to his ministry while he was among them. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Interestingly enough, he says very similar words when addressing the Thessalonian believers. I'm reading from 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 to 8. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any one of you. There are more texts found in the New Testament that are exactly like that, but they're found in the Old Testament as well. Proverbs 16, verse 3 says, Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. I noticed in the book of Genesis, Joseph provides an excellent example for all of us. He's constantly being betrayed and abused by others, and yet the Bible tells us the Lord was with him, and he became successful. That clearly is an example of his diligence in the work that he did. Now, if you're a believer today and you struggle to improve your standing and you wish to care for your loved ones, might I suggest to you, forget about the lottery and may I commend to you the means of grace that God has provided for you. Be diligent in your work and your plans will be established. Now then, that's what we have in Ruth. While her mother-in-law was struggling with her losses and her bitterness, Ruth was working. And so for the first time, the book of Ruth records the meeting of two remarkable people. Boaz, a man who has established an environment in his place of business that was not only a place to make a living, but was a place of godliness and righteousness. And Ruth, a woman who instead of bemoaning her position in life, rolls up her sleeves and does whatever she can. Now let's go to Ruth chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Now remember, we've been talking about discovering that God's grace is lavish and not meager. Had Ruth been a bitter woman, she might have complained that her work was producing so little. But God is about to intervene, and I notice four examples of lavish grace. First one, God offers her a place of belonging. Notice what Boaz calls her. The foreman has called her that foreign woman, but Boaz calls her my daughter. He has never met her, but he's heard all about her. He knows about her dead husband that was his relative, and he calls her family. And by this, he is signaling that he feels an obligation to act on her behalf. In that one important little phrase, my daughter, he breaks down the Jew-Gentile barrier and offers her a relationship of love within the context of family care. I can only imagine what those words meant to Ruth. In an instant, she didn't feel like an outcast or a foreigner. She felt that she had just a little toehold on belonging. I want to say this to everyone who is listening, who is a believer in Christ. You might remember what Paul said to those of us who are Gentile believers. He says that at one time we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants, no hope, no God. 
But in our conversion, those dividing walls were abolished, and those of us who are far off have been brought near. We've become members of the household of God. In other places, we're told that we are made into sons and daughters of God, adopted into his household. We found a place where we belong. This is lavish grace. And by the way, if you're an insider in your local church, utilize your position and act like Boaz towards outsiders. And if you feel like you're on the outside of your church, thank God that God has brought you near. And so the first example of lavish grace is that Ruth is made to feel like she belongs. Now here's the second one. God gives her a regular income base. Up until that moment, Ruth could not have known what the future would hold for her in Israel, but for the first time, light shines. Notice that after calling her my daughter, he tells her not to leave his field, but to keep close to the young women who work for him, go right behind where they're reaping. The word keep close is the same word that was used in Ruth 1 verse 14, where Orpah had left Naomi and gone home, and it says, Ruth clung to her. So in essence, Boaz is telling Ruth to cling to the young women who work with him. Don't leave them. Now, when I spoke about verse 14, I told you that this word was translated in the old King James Version as cleave. I pointed out then that this word is often used in marriage ceremonies. It means to form a permanent, binding, unbreakable attachment with someone. That's exactly what Boaz tells Ruth. Bind yourself both to my field and to my women. Make a commitment to my field, to my workers, to me as the source of your income. Here's what he's doing for her. He's offering her full-time work. She never has to wake up in the morning wondering where she will work that day. She has a place of belonging. No one is going to drive her away. And there comes a moment in our relationship with God that we hear of his care for our lives, and we can say with Paul in Philippians 4.19, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God is watching over me and over my welfare. And so Ruth noticed that God gave her a regular income base, and he gave her a place of belonging, but it was not over. God also gave her safety and protection. We can't even begin to overstress the dangers in Israel during the period of the Judges. The rape of the woman from Bethlehem recorded in Judges 19, you remember she was traveling through Gibeah, that rape was so outrageous it's hard to even begin to comprehend it. One could only imagine that Ruth was aware that walking onto a strange field with male workers who might notice her beauty put her in a place of considerable peril. Boaz is also aware of it, and so he offers her protection. He says he has charged the young men not to touch her. To touch her can mean anything from to violate her to try to solicit her. Boaz knows she is wandering in an open field and that she has no protector and that she is a Moabite. And many Jews considered Moabite women as sexually immoral, and any vile man would do to her what he liked without too many consequences. And Boaz offered her protection. But there is one more matter. He offered her water. Now, that might seem like a very small thing for us. But in a hot, dry climate where there is no tap to turn on, the only way to get water to a field would be to carry it, normally by hand or on the top of the heads of the women from the well located in Bethlehem. Free water was anything but free. It was a precious commodity, jealously guarded, but he offers it to her. 
See, what we're seeing here is that God offers her more than she had ever imagined. And the trouble that we might have here is because we know that in the end of the story, Boaz and Ruth will marry, and so many of us might imagine that Boaz was attracted to her, and that's why she got all this stuff. I mean, pretty girls always have the advantages, don't they? But the use of the term daughter seems to rule all of that out. He, in fact, emphasizes the age difference between them. He views his role not as a suitor, but as a father. In fact, that's exactly what he will say later on. And have you ever seen God as lavish? Can you imagine a God who knows what you need and responds to you out of concern and care and love? If you want to move beyond worry and bitterness and loss and discouragement, see your heavenly Father in every matter in your life and see his care for you in the same way as we see this man, Boaz, caring for this Moabite woman by the name of Ruth. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I know that there are some listening to my voice that may be overwhelmed by thinking that you are a meager God. Help them to see you as you truly are, Heavenly Father, that you are a God of rich resources who gives to his children all that they need in time of need. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for what you offer your children. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. John, what a great reminder of God's provision, God's grace. But I can just hear the voices of those that are saying, you know, but John, right now I'm struggling and I'm unemployed or there's real economic challenge or loss. I don't sense the lavishness of God. What would you say to those people? First of all, I want to acknowledge the truth of what individuals like that are saying. I think we need to say that the Bible does not promise us that we will never go through suffering or hardship or economic disadvantage. I mean, we need to know that sometimes that's precisely God's plan for our lives, but we need to at the same time acknowledge that God in his gracious hand is leading us through this, not so that we would have little, but that we would enter fully into everything that he has. I'm gonna say more about that uh, as we discuss this further tomorrow. Thanks, John, and we look forward to tomorrow's message in the book of Ruth right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Sometimes I think it's easy for us to miss the magnitude and the lavishness of God's grace, and so we live accordingly in a state of guilt, fear, and thanklessness. But the path God chooses for us is one of confidence and faith as we can freely come before Him in both the good times and in the bad. I hope that today's message has deeply encouraged you as we've learned about how Ruth believed and lived her life in this way, knowing that God had so graciously blessed her despite the setback she faced as a foreigner in Israel. Join us tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld continues teaching us in the Book of Ruth in week two of our current series. Back to the Bible Canada is pleased to announce a partnership with Promise Keepers Canada in presenting Dr. John Newfeld as one of the Promise Keeper Conference keynote speakers in the months ahead. These will be great events focused on every man's need to live courageously as a follower of Jesus. 
Dr. Neufeld will be participating in the Promise Keepers Quest Conferences in Toronto, Ottawa, Winnipeg and Edmonton, and the Promise Keepers Legacy Equipping Conference on Saturday, October 22nd in Abbotsford, British Columbia at the Gateway Community Church. To register and to check out all the upcoming Promise Keeper events, go to promisekeepers.ca or to discover upcoming Back to the Bible Canada events, visit backtothebible.ca. And don't forget, support Back to the Bible Canada with your financial gifts this summer. It means so much to sustain this Bible teaching ministry. To donate, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.